Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Deist. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Jeff Deist from Monetary Metals. I want to welcome everybody to our usual Friday afternoon Twitter space. Hope everybody's ready for a great weekend. Hope everybody's ready for a great topic, a great hour. So last week we had a discussion of the BRICS currency proposal. And our topic this week, our show this week, really dovetails with that in the sense that the flip side or the macro portion of whether the BRICS currency idea could ever work, if in fact it is attempted, really depends on this larger, broader macro question, international, global question of whether the U.S. dollar and its... But that's what we're going to discuss today. We've got some guests who are going to be joining us here momentarily. Interestingly, there's been some new developments since that uh, uh, BRICS announcement. Uh, Various countries saying, various members of the BRICS saying, well, it's actually not going to be on the agenda during their August meeting in South Africa. So more evidence that perhaps it was just floated as a trial balloon, but we don't know for sure. And there's a couple of articles we're going to be looking at because actually we want to have some diversity of opinions on this question today. Is U.S. dollar supremacy really over? And of course, by diversity, I mean the real kind people who have disagreements, not the fake kind. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, back in January, Joe was the co-author of a really interesting article called um, Reports of the Dollar's Death Have Been Greatly Exaggerated. And just a couple of days ago, on the 19th, Alistair was the author of an article called Why the Dollar is Finished. So a pretty strong uh, title by Alistair. So I'll just start off before. Um, I want to ask our speakers just very briefly, maybe in a, in a minute or less, to summarize their view, their current view of the U.S. dollar. Because as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, the dollar index, the DXY index, which gauges the U.S. dollar against a basket of other currencies, the euro and, and about five others, including the Japanese yen, the British pound, um, has been on a steady, if not uh, precipitous decline really since about November of 22, so almost a year now. The, the dollar index is down. So um, maybe if we start with Alistair McLeod, if everybody could just give a quick, you know, 30 seconds or one minute recap of where they think the dollar is right now, and then we'll get into the, the two articles I mentioned. So Alistair, do you mind going ahead? Uh, the answer um, uh, basically is that um, the Russians and Chinese are now in a position where they want to destabilize the dollar. This is becoming very important as far as the Russians are concerned, simply because if you look at the exchange rate, that has been collapsing. If you look at interest rates um, on the bond yield, that has been rising. If you look at uh, Russia's um, surplus on the balance of payments, that has been um, falling quite rapidly. So they need action. They need action. And that action basically is to push up commodity prices, which put another way is driving down the dollar. Now, as far as China is concerned, uh, they have switched their priority from um, protecting their export markets, if you like, to uh, another danger. And that is that with higher interest rates, emerging markets are being destabilized. Of that, there is absolutely no doubt. Now, these emerging markets, basically, um, roughly 41 of them are meant to be attending uh, this conference on the 22nd of the 24th of August in Johannesburg. It is immensely important for China to protect 
those countries from being destabilized by higher dollar interest rates. Now, she does believe that this is um, done on purpose as a matter of geopolitical strategy by America. Now, Jeff, I think as an Austrian economist, you would agree with me that this is probably more a question of the bank credit cycle than that. But nonetheless, it's what the Chinese believe that matters. Now, this plan for a new gold-backed trade currency has actually been worked out by Sergei Glaziev, uh, the Russian who was appointed to do this for the Eurasian Economic Union back in February, March last year. Now, he has obviously formulated his plans. It's been working for some time. It's actually quite a simple thing to do. That will come in, and I think it'll be... It won't necessarily start on August the 25th, but I think you'll find that the advance, the plans are actually quite far advanced. Now, that being the case, uh, quite simply, um, there's going to be, I think, a switch in many, many central banks' um, uh, uh, reserve portfolios away from the dollar towards gold. So I think it's good for gold, bad for dollar. And I, it's just amazing that the inside knowledge, it seems to me, has tipped the dollar trade weighted down below that very, very important 100.5 level and uh, essentially signaled that um, the next bear phase of the dollar is on us. That is a summary of the situation as I see it. I can't add much to that besides saying that uh, the, the dollar and the gold have basically been maintaining kind of opposite long-term trends. So that kind of you know confirms what you just said, Alistair. Yeah, let's hear from Joe. Hey everyone. Hey Jeff, uh, Alistair, this is my uh, first time hearing from you. So really well done there. Um, I appreciate your perspective and I'm sure we'll have a really good, good discussion today um, about uh, the dollar's future and where it's headed. Uh, my view tends to be, um, you know, obviously long-term bearish on the dollar, but long-term bearish on basically all other, uh, other government currencies. Um, of course, as they, you know, uh, are, are faced with this ever-mounting problem of ever-increasing debt and hard money becomes more attractive, um, you know, not just for individuals to own, but also for eventually central banks to allocate more towards and have that as a, as a part of their foreign exchange reserves rather than other uh, government fiat currencies. The way that I view it right now is that the dollar's position at the top of the heap um, is kind of cemented. I don't necessarily view any any kind of uh, gold-backed currency as being one that could threaten the dollar, purely because I don't think we're going to move globally into a regime of uh, global economic growth that will allow for anything other than uh, debt to be what backs that growth. Um, I don't. I don't think we'll be able to be. Uh, I don't think we'll be able to move into a an era um, out out of an era right now of uh, you know sort of a debt-based economic system and a debt-based monetary system into one um, that will be a hard money based, at least not without um, some kind of very, very significant deflationary event um, where a lot of the uh, global debt that underpins the global economy is uh, is unwound. And there's a pretty painful deleveraging before we can have something like a, a hard money standard. So I tend to think that the dollar is going to stick around for a while, um, as it has been. Reason being, of course, we both know that U.S. Treasuries are the most popular form of uh, uh, government debt around the world, and we know that uh, it's used as collateral by basically every major player on the world stage. Um, and uh, the way that I've analogized it, just to put it super simply for people, is that is that make up the 
the foreign exchange reserves within big world governments, they're not necessarily like a video game cartridge that you can like unplug and then plug a new one in. Um, they're more so, you know, let's take the dollar, for example, being around um, at the Bretton Woods conference and having the dollar uh, agreed upon as the uh, world's reserve currency post-war when we were really coming and building this new economic regime, we really hit the jackpot, frankly, because now in the years since we've built this big gargantuan spider web of interconnected economic relationships um, that all rely on the dollar to function. And because of that, we really hit the jackpot. When I say we, I mean the, the United States, the US dollar, um, because now in order to unplug that would cause would necessitate sort of an unwind of all of those relationships um it's not like i said it's not really a a cartridge you can unplug and plug it back in i see now as, as remarkably similar uh to spring of 1942 we're in a we're in a very precarious place uh we have a lot of enemies around the globe i don't mean in the in the sense of uh, uh militarily but at least monetarily and there are a lot of forces arrayed against us, and we are very much behind the eight ball. That's not to say uh, the dollar is doomed. That's not to say there's no recovering from this. But we certainly have a long way to, to claw back before we can achieve. So even just stabilizing the dollar for our own, uh, for our own purposes as our own currency. That is the, that is the very uh, quick and dirty version of, of my take at this point. Alistair, could you start for us by just just addressing this question of the U.S. posed against Russia and China as competing hegemons. What's the geopolitics as you see it? Well, the geopolitics is quite simple, and that is that they have, that uh, Russia and China have a com common enemy, I'm afraid, in the form of America and her allies. And, um, you know, uh, you're particularly saber rattling over uh, Taiwan and the Pacific and all the rest of it. Uh, whereas, of course, uh, Europe is very much tied up with the Ukrainian situation. Now, the Ukrainian situation, uh, there's so much disinformation. It's very difficult to know exactly what people have heard. If you read the mainstream media, um, you know, the Ukrainians are doing jolly well. And, you know, I mean, but that's actually a load of bullshit. They are... Um, they are on the losing end here. They are uh, losing men at a horrendous rate. And not only that, but uh, we can see that um, Putin has now has got this situation where he can progress with it. It will probably bring in Poland uh, in the Bino Rush uh, side, uh, which, you know, we're tipping towards World War Three. Now, this is very worrying because certainly America and the NATO do not want to back down. They cannot back down. They're in this situation where there are no negotiations. So the only way in which this can really be resolved is with a financial war. And I think this is a point which most people miss. And certainly I find that American commentators sort of think as and we've I think we've seen this reflected in the comments just uh, just now that you know the dollar the dollar is the dollar the dollar's there everybody needs it but you know just remember one thing there is 32 trillion dollars worth of financial assets of which 7 trillion is less than one year including about six and a half trillion of deposits in foreign hands this is more than the whole US GDP that is the situation which Russia and China are resolved to change. And this is a very serious situation. The run on the dollar could be quite quick 
and really catastrophic because if you look on the other side of it, um, foreign equities are all in ADR form. If you sell your um, foreign equities, there is no currency transaction. The amount of, according to the Treasury tick figures, the amount of foreign exchange owned um, by uh, domestic residents and their businesses in America are only to the tune of around about $650 billion. Now, so $650 billion plays $32 trillion. This is not a good ratio. And uh, if you look at the way currency swaps work, they do not work in the sort of quantity which is required to deal with this situation and support the dollar. So I think the danger to the dollar is being underestimated. Now, I do not um, dispute that the dollar is still going to be used for foreign transactions. But the whole point about this new trade settlement currency is that it is actually easy to set up. And I've illustrated this in my articles. And not only that, but being restricted to trade finance and the purchase and sales of commodities across the members of the states, which will be in a large BRICS come Shanghai cooperation organization. That can be priced in both dollars and also in this new gold currency. And using the new gold currency for these transactions will be mandated, I think, for the members of this new um, enlarged BRICS Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And incidentally, I think on the agenda will also be um, a proposal to merge the Shanghai Cooperation Organization with BRICS. Um, because if you look at the attendees, they are virtually all Shanghai Cooperation Organization members, associates, and dialogue partners, as well as quite a lot of south, south of Sahara, Africa, and of course, the whole of the Middle East. This is a very, very big deal. And I can see why, I can fully understand why resident Americans just don't see this danger. But believe you me, this really is a danger and it mustn't be underestimated. Joe, you, you talk about uh, FX reserves, how Russia has lots and lots of US dollars, China has lots and lots of US dollars and US treasuries. Is that, is that the counter argument here? Well, not necessarily. So there's, there, there are a few things. Um, and well said, Alistair. Uh, I want to go into... So Russia basically has no U.S. treasuries anymore. Ever since, uh, I think they, they peaked out at roughly like $150 billion, $160 billion in 2010. And now they've dwindled to like $2.1 billion, which effectively is nothing other than um, just general needs for some partners. Um, just, just like very minute cash management stuff. Um, and... Uh, you know, throughout that time, the Central Bank of Russia, their FX reserves have uh, ballooned to, uh, they, they, they have only risen in that time, right? So in the same time that they've dropped U.S. treasuries, their FX reserves on that have risen. So it becomes a question of like, okay, um, what is uh, what is still comprising their FX reserves if they've dropped U.S. treasuries? Well, the reality is for uh, Russia, 16.5% as of January of this year, uh, of their FX reserves are still in do uh, dollar-denominated assets. Um, so while U.S. Treasuries are no longer there, dollar-denominated assets still uh, make up a pretty good uh, chunk, although they've decreased you know, over the last two or three years, still a pretty good chunk of Russia's FX reserves. And that kind of paints the, uh, you know, it paints the issue with dropping the dollar entirely. It's a pretty tall order to stop you. Like I said, you know, it's this, it's this, uh, we basically are like the bedrock underneath the global economic machine that's been building for over, you know, half a century, right? 
Uh, and so you can't necessarily remove that bedrock without um, some pretty major economic uh, pitfalls. Um, it's it's really, and the way that I phrased it was that it's a tall order to stop using the world's primary settlement currency when you're the only one abstaining from it, right? And therein lies the problem with other nations who are attempting to do the same, right? If you stop using dollars, even if you're a big nation like Russia or China, okay, that's awesome. But what about all of the other 250 some odd nations around the world that still use it and you still need to deal with them? Um, so, so therein lies the problem. And that's also the same uh, issue that China faces. So China is similarly... Um, dropped a lot of its U.S. treasuries and now only holds 870 billion, whereas it held uh, 13, uh, 1.3 trillion uh, about a decade ago. So, uh, reducing those at a steady clip. Um, and uh, but but if we zoom out to world currency composition, so if we break it down to all of the globe's FX reserves, what percentage of them is what currency, right? So what percentage of them is in gold? What percentage of them is in all these other currencies? And over the last two, 25 years almost, since 1999, um, if, you, if you factor in things like gold, um, which on the BIS's website uh, is categorized as unallocated reserves, then the US dollar is basically flat at roughly 50% over the last uh, 25 years. So uh, there was a trend from about 2000 to 2015 of de-dollarization where this percentage of dollars in foreign exchange reserves at central banks dropped from 55 to around 30. But in the last decade or in the last nine years, more accurately, it's risen back up from 30% back up to 50%. And so the reality is that right in this world that we're in and if the issue is that the world is too much debt uh, and that's the problem um and, and we're we're a global economy that's reliant on more and more debt then the solution uh wouldn't be to kneecap yourself and say all right we're going to be the only players who don't um fund our fund ourselves with debt fund our expansion with debt and particularly with dollar denominated debt and then switch to something like a gold-backed currency um, and this reality is actually something that BRICS themselves has have uh, have faced. If you look at China's BRICS Development Bank, um, which of the the official name uh, is the New Development Bank, and that was established. It's headquartered in China by Xi Jinping, uh, or excuse me, uh, it's headquartered in China, and uh, it is uh, it is a bank developed for all of the major BRICS counterparts, those being Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, and it's called the New Development Bank. Just recently, they stopped making new loans. And according to an examination of their finances and interviews with bankers and others familiar with the matter, per a Wall Street Journal report about a month ago, they're having trouble raising dollar funds. Um, and so, you know, a little bit ironic, but it helps illustrate the, the, the major issue that the world is contending with, with this idea of unplugging from the dollar and moving to something else. Even this development bank, right, that is trying to fund operations uh, for the expansion of member nations and for uh, de-dollarization still has this entrenched need for dollar-based funding. And in fact, they're facing a, a dollar funding shortage. Um, so, so that just sort of paints the issue, right? Even though a few people may want to unplug, it's the, the reality is that because the world still uses it, it's kind of a, a strange situation where you can't necessarily leave entirely. 
Uh, and then it comes to the question of like, okay, well, who is going to, who's going to take up the mantle? Who's going to head up this new gold backed or this new BRICS currency? And then the way that I analogized it was that like, if you've seen the film Reservoir Dogs, and I hate to use so many analogies like this when explaining my position, but I think it helps. If you've seen the film Reservoir Dogs at the very end in the finale, um, there are three guys all pointing guns at each other. I think it's four guys actually. Um, and it's a several man Mexican standoff. And that's one of the ways that I envision um, how the, uh, you know, the, 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 the arguments or conversation would be a better way to put it around. Okay. If the dollar is gone, who's going to replace it. Right. And then it just becomes like a several country Mexican standoff where there isn't really a clear strategy for any one of these countries to uh, achieve victory over the U S dollar in absence of corporation. And, and as we know, it's, it's kind of difficult. You know, I, I, I presume it'd be difficult, particularly with uh, the threat of war now being pretty global, um, that all these countries would cooperate and agree that say, oh, Russia will be the new primary uh, reserve currency for our foreign exchange reserves. So China will or Brazil will. And so then, you know, even if you're able to displace the dollar, it becomes an even bigger question of who's going to replace it and all of the countries that will take issue with it. So that's um, a bit of a hodgepodge, but basically where, where my mind stands right now. EJ, is this, is this a war? Tell me it's not a war. Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, thank God it isn't yet in the military sense, but to a certain degree, this, this very much feels like at least the, the prelude to a monetary war. Because let me, let me um, just say, it, I, it feels like P Americans are deeply unserious about Russia and, the U and, and their war with Ukraine, and that that unseriousness could lead to this grandiose uh, sense of hubris with respect to the ongoing power of the U.S. dollar. I, I think it's a very, very real concern. And, and what I think is, is probably the biggest concern, the biggest threat right now, uh, is, is bilateral trade agreements between countries to use their own currencies instead of the United States dollar, at least when it comes to, to settling international trade. So if you have two countries, A and B, and they trade with the rest of the world, but also with each other, uh, it, it does them no harm to simply conduct their trade in their own currencies and just get rid of the dollars they used to use for that purpose. They will still be trading with other partners around the world, and the trade that they conducted with each other in dollars was essentially a wash. The dollars just, you know, it very much was a revolving door where it went from country A to country B and then, and then back again. And so it, it, it is reminiscent to a certain extent of, of what Hjalmar Schock did in Germany in the 1930s, which was absolutely brilliant. And he essentially conducted these bilateral trade agreements between Germany and various countries, mostly in Eastern Europe, and by those agreements was able to really break the fiscal domination uh, that Europe had, or excuse me, that, that Great Britain had over continental Europe. And, and so that I think is, is a huge concern right now for the United States dollar. And, and it is, frankly, a, a way by which countries like China, like Russia, that have a tremendous amount of international trade, particularly when it comes to exporting real assets, uh, it, is a, it is a way that those countries can wage economic war against the United States. David, I thought we bought so much cheap crap from the Chinese that they would never interfere with this arrangement. I mean, I, you know, we were told this is sort of the end of history types, the neoliberal Francis Fukuyama's 
told us that this was not going to happen. Yeah, and one thing that comes to mind when thinking about that is this was kind of glossed over with all the SVB stuff, but um, there was a Cayman Island uh, branch of SVB that had a decent amount of, of Chinese like venture capital firms and, and Chinese nationals kept their some money there. And that was actually not uh, bailed out. And, and they, they've actually, those um, individuals and institutions have had to like go through legal machinations uh, in the Cayman Islands to try to recover some of those funds. So I think that, you know, this whole, you know, Chinese dollar system, it, de- it depends on, uh, you know, Chinese institutions and, and individuals being able to park the, the money that they get for selling us the cheap stuff in into the United States or into, you know, the dollar system. But if the dollar, if the banks are failing and we're bailing out only like the American part, right, I think that that sends them the signal to, to send their money elsewhere. So I think that, you know, that's just one example of something that I think could get pretty interesting if this, you know, credit crunch commercial real estate starts to hit and then U.S. banks start failing. What happens to, to the, the foreign deposits in those banks? So, yeah, just a lot of, lot of interesting stuff going on. I mean, I think David actually makes a very, very good point that what we don't know is how the Chinese and Russians are viewing the Western banking system. I mean, you don't have to be terribly clever to know that all the major central banks are deep into negative equity. In other words, you know, if they had to behave like the rest of us, they're bust. And, you know, the directors and all the rest of it should be in jail. Um, that is the underlying situation. And it's a situation which is particularly serious when it comes to the Eurozone, uh, because I've made the point on that one that, um, you know, it's quite easy to rescue the Fed. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've illustrated the balance sheet maneuvers to do that in my writings. But when it comes to the Eurozone, you, you've got the whole Euro system. So you're not only recapitalizing the ECB itself, you're recapitalizing nearly all the national central banks. And the huge great imbalances in Target 2, which are unexplained and all the rest of it. I mean, this is a legislative nightmare and there is absolutely no way that can be dealt with. Anyway, um, moving on from that, you're you're asking about the Triffin's Triffin's dilemma. Yes, I mean, Robert Triffin, I think um, this was in evidence to... Um, uh, the uh, to Congress um, or the Senate back in uh, in in the sixties, I think about nineteen sixty six, where he said that in order for a currency to act as um, a reserve currency, then what the country issuing the currency had to do was uh, to run deficits so that there would be sufficient currency in circulation outside the country uh, to act as a reserve. Currency uh, and inevitably these are uh, economic policies which are uh, destructive uh, economically as far as the issuer the issuer of the currency is concerned, and so what you have is you know you have okay the dollar um, gets exported in huge quantities and there's demand for it and all the rest of it and it remains strong because everybody wants it, but there comes a point where uh, the consequence of running deficits, budget deficits and matching um, trade deficits and all the rest of it is that you end up with a crisis. And certainly we're at that position at the moment, but the timing of it, I think, is very much in the hands of um, uh, you know, Russia and China. And it's rather like the sort of, if I can go use, use an analogy rather like Joe does, it's rather like the cartoon character, you know, where they 
you know, Tom has been sort of hit by a plank or something and Jerry just with one finger just pushes him and he falls over. And I think we're probably, in terms of Trippin's dilemma, at that point. Yeah, I'd like to open it up to our speakers for any back and forth. I mean, I would say my my heart is with Alistair. <laughs> I think maybe my thoughts are, are with Joe. I mean, I think we have to accept that a, a lot of people have been calling for the U.S. dollar's demise really since the 70s and that things can go on a lot longer than we imagine they can. And they have. I mean, the United States is an absolute bully with respect to its dollar, is absolutely profligate with respect to its spending and its lack of fiscal discipline, not only on the monetary policy side, but as we all saw on the fiscal side since COVID, oh my goodness. Um, and the rest of the world never seems to get its act together and punish us and say, we're not going to deal in this currency anymore. We're going to demand junk bond rates to buy U.S. Treasury debt. Quite the opposite has happened. Um, and so as a result, and I think Joe's article, um, and, and I'll link to both of these on my Twitter after the show. I think Joe's article really makes the point that, that this currency is so entrenched. Uh, it's still such a huge part of the composition of worldwide FX that it, the liquidity it provides is so important just to the day-to-day. -day, it's like the oil in your engine for, for the world's economy. Um, so th th those are my thoughts. I'm not, you know, and I, and I do think the BRICS proposal itself is not nigh. I think that was a trial balloon. And maybe that comes in two years or five years or whatever it does. I'm not sure Alistair agrees, but I would just open it up to speakers. Right. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Alistair, well said. Great analogy, by the way. Thanks. You know, at the end of the day, I believe that, um, you know, as you mentioned, people have been calling for the death of the, the dollar since the 70s. And so to me, the first thing that I did back in January when I really wanted to understand this was just dig into the data. And if you're looking at just a purely what makes world reserve currency, the composition of foreign exchange reserves, then the dollar is just sitting pretty. Right. The dollar is sitting over the last two decades, it's sitting at roughly 50, 55 percent of total global foreign exchange reserves, factoring in um, uh, currency and non-currency assets. And so then it just becomes a question of what are the risk factors and are these risk factors unique to the United States or are they um, also a global problem? And the main risk factor is the ever increasing debt problem. Right. Um, and is that a factor that's unique to the United States? And to me, it doesn't seem like it is. And it seems like the debt problem is actually something that's worse elsewhere. And so at the end of Alistair's article, and I think he'll be able to talk about this as well, he talks about how all fiat currencies are threatened. And so to me, um, it doesn't seem like a uniquely United States issue, the one that is uh, currently facing it, and the one that a lot of people say will undermine the US dollar with time, and that is debt. It doesn't seem to me that that's a uniquely U.S. issue. And for that reason, I think that because of how entrenched and widely used the dollar is for global tra trade, and as I mentioned, as a percentage of foreign exchange reserves, I think it'll it'll probably be the last one to fall as a function of this debt issue. Other unique risk factors, of course, aside, um, I think uh, the dollar sits pretty currently just from a data standpoint at the top of the, uh, you know, the, the fiat heap that's sort of uh, devaluing and crumbling. And so then it becomes a question of whether or not you believe the dollar is here to stay for another uh, another five years or another five decades. It becomes 
if this debt problem is here and it's here to stay and austerity is something at a government level that we can't even hope for in our wildest dreams, then it becomes like, what do you want to allocate to at an individual level? Um, and that's hard money. And whether you believe that is something like gold or whether you believe that's Bitcoin or whether you believe Bitcoin's worthless, whatever you believe to be hard money, that isn't something that uh, a central bank, or that that is something that a central bank can't get its grimy paws on and uh, create more of, then that's probably what you want to allocate to, right? You know, Alistair and I may disagree on the path for the U.S. dollar specifically, but I think we both agree um, that uh, austerity at a government level is probably a bygone hope. Um, and if that is the case, then you'll probably want to, at an individual level, spend time thinking about how you're going to allocate away from it. But uh, that's that's my piece. I'll, I'll hand it over to any of the other speakers. I think, sorry, can I inter, um, in, interject? I think and, anybody yeah, I mean, can interrupt. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, I think. I mean, you do make some good points, but I think the one overriding point which um, we must understand. Well, the two things. First of all. I agree, we've all been crying wolf for a very long time, but one of these days the wolf comes along, and <laughs> probably when we least expect it. But the second point I'd like to make, Joe, is that um, in t I think you've got to look at, um, you know, who is long of what, and there is no doubt that um, the international players, as it were, um, you know, foreigners are very, very long of the dollar. I mean, they are hugely long, not only just as reserves, not only just as liquidity, um, not just as, um, you know, having some liquidity in order to pay down US dollar debt, but also portfolio investment. I mean, this is huge. Now, the other thing in the background is that in the West, we have a credit crunch. And what that means is that the shortage of credit because banks are now contracting their credit, will drive up interest rates. So this is no longer under the control of the central banks. And of course, all the markets hope that this inflation dragon has now been dealt with and this interest rate problem will start ameliorating. That's not going to happen because we've got a credit squeeze. And that credit squeeze, credit crunch, will drive up interest rates, drive up bond yields, drive down equities. So where's that 32 trillion of foreign ownership of dollars going to go? There's only one way it can go, and that's get the hell out of the dollar. Now, I, can, I would admit that the alternatives like the euro, sterling, yen, and so on and so forth are all in the same boat, but to a lesser degree or for different reasons. But they are not owned as much around the world as dollars, and it'll be dollars which really do suffer. They will all go down. But of course, the central banks will be adjusting their uh, reserve portfolios. Um, they will be reducing the amount of dollars and increasing their amount of gold. I mean, it's 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 a dead cert. I think it's as simple as that. So to your point, the, regardless of what central banks do, the market is saying that there's a huge demand for liquidity and there's not as much credit available. That means higher rates. And of course, that's also bad for Congress trying to finance uh, U.S. debt, it's already approaching a trillion dollars annually. So am I, am I paraphrasing you correctly? You're dead right. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And it's, I mean, you know, every way you look at this, I mean, it's just bad, bad, bad. I mean, I've been looking at, um, you know, bank lending in the UK. It's collapsing. I mean, you know, what does this tell us? It tells us that interest rates are going to go up because there's a credit shortage. And my friends uh, in the insolvency trade have never been so busy. The banks are saying, you know, help, we've got, we've got uh, loan customers here who, who we think are probably not going to repay us. Go in and sort them out. 
This is going on all around the world. But I tell you, this is a very important point. The one part of the world which is actually fairly well insulated from this is the BRICS and Shanghai Cooperation Circus run by Russia and China. And they have a vested interest in pursuing their own strategy, which is completely different from our collapse. And not only that, but gold, if gold backs the currency, which is used as a trade currency, and that spreads to the other currencies, think of it from the point of view of Russia. At the moment, uh, if you want to, you know, if you're a business, let's say, a, you know, a reasonable sized business in Russia trying to borrow money, you're going to be paying over 10%. Once gold comes in, that falls down in time as confidence uh, uh, gets, re, you know, regains about uh, the currency situation, that will fall down to around about two and a half to three percent. This is this is the prize that they have in the whole of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the BRICS tribe. And I think they will probably include as many countries as they possibly can on an associate membership basis, because obviously, you know, it's very bureaucratic getting these um, countries in as members of BRICS. But there is this divergence, and I don't think it's, it's really fully um, appreciated that one half of the world, which is our half of the world, is going to hell in a handcart. But the rest of it has actually got very good prospects because of the industrialization that is going to occur really amongst the world's, the majority of the world's population. We're talking about 64, 65% of the world's population benefiting from this. And it's all the growth areas, if you like, in Keynesian terms. So this is, this is a very big deal. And, you know, the, the world is splitting in two. And unfortunately, we're in the bad half of it. Um, Alistair, if I could actually, and well said, but if, if I could ask you a question, uh, how, does, how does India factor into this? Because I think that in the West, we underestimate how kind of aligned on some things India is with Russia, right? They've refused to condemn the, uh, the SMO. They, uh, you know, have really ramped up their oil purchases. Uh, but India is also kind of in bed with the United States. And I'm wondering, just from a geopolitics perspective, are they are they waiting it out? Are they could they nix this whole this whole BRICS uh, gold backed currency? I'd love to hear your thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you look at um, the history since partition after World War Two, Russia has always been pretty close to Russia. And indeed, the, you know, one of the reasons that partition happened the way it did was that um, the British wanted to see um, a separate um, element, if you like, in the form of, of Pakistan, uh, which would not be aligning with Russia. And uh, that was part of the problem, I think, that arose at partition. Um, I think the current uh, policy, and we see the same in Turkey, is there's a lot of fence sitting going on. Now, we know which direction they're going. We know that they're, go that, uh, they're now very much tied in with the the, you know, the massive Asian project by the Asian hegemons. Um, but of course, you don't turn around and spit in the face of, um, of America and the Western islands, uh, allies, you don't. I mean, apart from anything thing else, they're the, your markets. No, this is all diplomacy. So that's the way I would look at it. And I think um, this won't stop their drifting in that direction. It won't stop them supporting a new gold-linked trade currency though they may not be ready to put the rupee on a gold standard. Um, and this is another point which I think is well worth understanding. We are completely unable to go away from a fiat currency system because of our welfare costs and because of the uh, commitments that we have when the economy goes down. 
But if you look at the finances of pretty well all the BRICS and Shanghai cooperation members, they don't have these burdens. So they could actually put their currencies either on a gold standard or on a currency board system with a more stable currency, which itself probably ends up on a gold standard. You know, I think one one aspect about the United States dollar's uh, staying power, I guess you could say, um, is the fact that we, we sometimes think of a country's default risk and the reliability of, of the currency, or at least people's willingness to hold that currency as having a kind of linear relationship. But in fact, it's really exponential. Part, part of that is because of how treasuries have historically been rehypothecated, which is basically just a fancy way of saying the same United States Treasury can effectively be posted as collateral over and over and over again and essentially pledged multiple times similar to the way uh, a single dollar that you put on deposit in a bank can be loaned out multiple times as well um, so there's there's that aspect to it you know the the United States dollar is is in many ways just the least bad fiat currency uh, in in terms of going forward though, uh, again, the, the risks here are incredibly real, uh, and and the fact remains that you have a lot of countries that, as was just stated, not only do they not have the welfare states that we do, not only do they not have the obligations that we do, but on top of that, they have real assets that they can export. They have commodities, right? They have coal, they have oil, and granted, we have some of those things too, but we've thus far proved very unwilling, at least recently, to actually export them. Uh, we're talking about countries that have rare earth minerals and, and even non-rare earths. They just have them in very great quantities. So they have actual things that they can trade with as opposed to what, what we've been trading with which is debt. Now, that's not to say we haven't been exporting very valuable services around the world. We certainly have. You know, the United States has, has proven to be a, a world leader when it comes to that. But but again, we're, we're going up against countries, uh, you know, that, that have something that the dollar does not, which is real value behind it. Yeah, EJ, what would the rest, what would the, rest of the world be without Deloitte and McKinsey? <laughs> We, we, well, we definitely export some things uh, uh, culturally, let's just say, not, not just economically. Uh, Joe, if, if you're still with us, I, I want to get to a really interesting point you made in your article. That First you said, well, the world is decentralizing, so I want to understand what you mean by that. But as a result, the U.S. dollar actually becomes more essential, not less, because a lot of people are talking about a breakup into sort of regional currencies, regional trading zones um, in the in the skirmish. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, you know, the reality is that, like I said, since Bretton Woods, I think the, the way that I viewed it and the way that it has worked for the last 50 years, and of course, it's not good to get complacent. It's not good to say, because this is the way things have been, this is the way things will continue to be. Not a good thing, not a good way to invest. We always got to be probabilistic in assessing the real risk factors. But um yeah, like the the general idea is that since we really lucked out at Bretton Woods, and for um, you know since that time, we've basically been the fit beneficiary of the world's economy getting built on top of U.S. dollar rails. Um, and so, as the world 
you know, a- as communication mechanisms get better, as technology improves and uh, trade partners now are not just the big ones like China, Russia, the United States, but rather um, small countries can now trade with one another without the need for a big intermediary because of how communication has improved so much. Like we're all, you know, we're all talking to one another. Granted, I, I imagine a lot of us are on the Western Hemisphere, but um a great deal of us are just spread across the world. And now we're talking, um, it's beaming up to a satellite and beaming back down to your phone almost instantaneously. That's pretty crazy. Um, it to, to simplify it to an extreme degree. Um, but that technology has also allowed trade partners to move from, uh, you know, uh, having to be interconnected to with big trade hubs to now being far more fragmented. And I guess a word to use, the word that, that you used, and a word that I may have used, again, I wrote this six months ago, was um, decentralized, right? Far far fewer major trade hubs, far fewer major intermediaries, much more fragmented. Um, and what that means is that like, if the global economy is built on rails of the United States dollar, then if the trade is being more fragmented and flowing through less major hubs, then that stands to reason that the currency that underlies all of it would become more ossified, right? Um, but also, again, this is a new new era we're moving into. It could also mean the opposite, right? What I just said was total conjecture. It could also mean the opposite. It could also mean that because the trade partners are now far more fragmented and they're not using these big intermediaries, then that means they have more leeway to decide what currency they use between one another. And that may also open the door for uh, dollar dominance to wane. It could open the door for um, uh, these countries to start using uh, a currency uh, of one or the other um, rather than having to use one world reserve currency. Um, but uh, that remains to be seen, right? I, that basically, what I illustrated was that the relationship between trade partners and the currency that, that they use is uh, is shifting because the way that trade works is shifting, right? These big intermediaries are now no longer necessary uh, as much as they were. And because of that, it could either mean that the dollar gets ossified in its role or the dollar gets di- displaced. Um, but that remains to be seen. I'm curious what other people think of that general idea up on stage. Well, we re- it remains to be seen how that actually pans out. Um, but I'd like to make another point. Uh, and this is, this is, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's, all coming together to some sort of crisis. I mean, we're turning our back on fossil fuels. We have in effect said to the Middle East, we don't want your product anymore after 2030 or 2035 or 2040, whenever. So what they're doing quite simply is they're turning towards China. And uh, we've seen this, Uh, we see that they're accepting uh, renminbi. Uh, We've seen particularly uh, the policy of the Saudi uh, Saudi Arabians. And it was fascinating to see Joe Biden turning up, um, uh, I think it was last December, to see MBS to try and persuade him to turn on the oil taps because they were were a bit fed up with supplying oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, uh, But, um, you know, he was just basically, you know, half an hour with the big man and, um, you know, very nice to see you, bugger off. And the next week, literally, um, in comes President Xi, you know, with fighter jets escorting him and you had, you know, black Arab stallions riding along by the car. I mean, this was real medieval pantomime. He was welcomed with open arms. And you know something, um, I don't know if you've really noticed it, but ever since the Americans and us have effectively been kicked out militarily from the Middle East, peace has returned. 
Suddenly you've got Iran, um, you know, uh, talking with, with Saudi Arabia. The Houthis, uh, you know, who've been funded by the, by the, by the Iranians, uh, are now talking peace. Um, President Assad visiting Riyadh. And so, I mean, you know, peace has broken out now that we've left. I mean, I don't think there's any clearer signal of how important this whole change is. We're turning our back on fossil fuels and we are killing ourselves in the process because the most important thing we have in any manufacturing uh, 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 situation, indeed in our survival, is energy. We're doing away with it. We're, you know, we're killing our old folk. This is just crazy. Whereas, you know, this, this is something which, as far as China and all the rest of them are concerned, they welcome with open arms. They're burning coal. You know, I mean, China is opening God knows how many new uh, coal-fired um, power stations. They were, I mean, they paid lip service to, to this um, climate change thing, but they don't treat it seriously. We are killing ourselves in this. This is a very, very big change we're seeing. The, the pace of events, I think, is likely to accelerate a lot more quickly than is generally realized. Well, the, you know, that's interesting because you bring up the climate uh, it change <clears throat> a movement and some of these calls to abandon fossil fuels by X date, which, of course, anyone who understands a fundamental reality who has read Alex Epstein's book knows that these are just absolute pie in the sky. I mean, they, to even attempt this halfway would result in, you know, uh, unbelievable economic harm to any country that tried it. So we have this unseriousness, this unreality, and it seems to uh, uh, manifest itself in U.S. foreign policy, the idea that we can go remake Afghanistan. It seems to manifest itself in dollar policy. We can, you know, there will always be a market for our treasuries. Uh, we don't have to worry about debt. Deficits don't matter. And there's this unreality also in our so-called environmental or energy policy, our climate change policy. And you put all this together and then, no offense to anyone, but when you talk to especially people under 40 who have never seen a true bear market, other than COVID, which was a bit of an artifice, what actually was an artifice, um, you know, people just simply imagine that the United States can will things into existence, things that go against economic reality, things that go against physical reality with respect to energy. Um, and that's, that's what frightens me, is uh, this idea that we don't have to worry about the laws of nature, the laws of economics, because we're the United States and we're wealthy, we're the hegemon since the former Soviet Union collapsed, and it will always be this way. You know, wealth materializes out of thin air, and everywhere we go, there's a Starbucks and, and hot and cold running water and electricity and air conditioning, and I think Southern Europe especially could use some of that air conditioning right now. <laughs> you, you begin to wonder whether we are blundering our way into an epic um, car crash here. Yeah, I think you're right, Jeff. I mean, this this is, um, you know, it's for certain, let's face it. I mean, but this is something that, um, you know, the Middle East has been expecting for some time. I mean, we've been telegraphing the way we're going. And, um, you know, I'm not going to talk about the merits or demerits of the climate change argument, because I find that detracts from people listening to me about economics. But um, the reality is that we've basically pissed off the whole of the, of, of the Middle East. And uh, they are 
uh, along with Russia and along with um, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, they are the only real low cost uh, producers of oil in the world. And, you know, um, what, what are we left with? We're left with, with shale and all the rest of it, which requires an awful lot of energy input. And I'll tell you something else on, on this story. And that is that if in, in Europe still, 98% of logistics is driven by diesel. Now, how are we going to overcome that in the next five, 10 years? I mean, you know, it's, it's just cloud cuckoo stuff. It really is. So, but, you know, so we've got this death wish, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, looking at the press reports, the mainstream media reports about what's going on in, in Ukraine and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a sense of complete unreality propaganda, the whole thing. I mean, I think it's very sad that we're not allowed um, to even sort of stand back and look at the truth in these matters. Um, and so everybody thinks that uh, there is no problem, as you, as you very, very correctly point out. Well, I want to give David the last word. Uh, give us your wrap-up, and then I'll, I'll, give, I'll provide some show notes, and we'll uh, send everybody off to hopefully a great weekend. Thank you, and, and I'd just love to add, uh, in, in March, uh, Peter C. Earle wrote a great article called ESG as an Artifact of, of ZERP, or Zero Interest Rate Policy. I think that, um, you know, and today I saw in the, in the Wall Street Journal, there's an article called the, the Rise and Fall of the Chief Diversity Officer. And I think that people, people still don't really, they're still kind of... Uh, grappling with the fact that, you know, these, you can't afford these corporate uh, kind of baubles with uh, when money's expensive. But I would just love to, I really enjoyed this space and I love to see, you know, kind of the, a Bitcoin and, and gold crossover between Alistair and, and Joe and just wish everybody a, a happy weekend. Well, folks, if, if you want to send this show to anyone or give it a second listen, again, it, within a few days, it'll be produced as a YouTube at Monetary Metals YouTube channel and also generally run on Zero Hedge. I want to encourage everybody, be sure to follow our speakers on Twitter. Uh, Joe Casorti has a really interesting Substack called the Bitcoin Layer. Uh, so check that out over on Substack. And be sure to check back on my Twitter because usually on Thursday afternoons, I announce the Friday subject matter. We're always going live Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And, you know, just hit me up on Twitter messages if you have any ideas for guests or potential show topics that you're looking for down the road. But we're always talking about money and the uh, uh, effects of money and issues surrounding money. So it was a great conversation today. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank Alistair for spending some of his uh, Friday evening time with us. I want to thank Joe, who's new to the show. And hope everybody has a great weekend. We will be back next Friday. Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Thank you for organizing it. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thank you, Alistair. Wonderful discussion. Um, yeah, despite the name of the Substack, the Bitcoin layer, uh, we do cover global macro quite a bit. Uh, we view Bitcoin as a, uh, a an asset in a universe of assets. And hence why you see uh, a guy with bitcoin in his bio arguing that you know some of the uh, the the death of the dollar stuff may lead uh, may be a little bit uh, hyperbolic uh, which is generally something you you don't see so uh, despite the name the bitcoin layer we do cover global macro uh, as our focus and how bitcoin fits in that universe and once again jeff david alistair ej wonderful conversation i hope you guys have a uh, have a tremendous weekend thanks
<laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs>